friends, colleagues, and cooperative multicellular organisms. Welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz. I'm your host, Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we are joined by... Athena Actipus. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> Hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule today to drop in and uh, join us live in studio, which is kind of exciting for us. Mm-hmm. It is so my pleasure. I'm <laughs> really excited to be talking with you guys. Perfect way to start my day. Oh, Brilliant. Yeah, early morning. Uh, it's not that early. <laughs> early <laughs> <It's morning>. <laughs> for, for an academic, it's pretty early. So Athena, give us a little bit of background. Where are you from? What are you doing? Uh, and what are you studying? Well, I'm a professor at ASU, Arizona State University, and I'm in the psychology department. And I'm also uh, the director of a new initiative at ASU called the Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative. And we look at cooperation across systems. And, And that's what I do in my lab, too. I look at cooperation in humans. So how do humans share and help each other in times of need? But also, how do other entities cooperate, like cells in our bodies and I'm interested in the really like deep, deep questions about how cooperation comes about in the first place, so how it evolves and what helps to maintain it. Okay. So are we going to be talking then from like cells within our body all the way up to us as humans cooperating to make the world go around kind of thing? Exactly. Although the oh. world goes around not because of us. Oh, yes. <laughs> so Common misconception, which we'll tackle at the yeah. end of the episode, the mis- misconceptions. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I thought the sun rotated around me exclusively. Yeah. <laughs> Drake, you definitely feel that way. <laughs> uh, that, this is, so this is interesting. Cooperation, whenever I think of cooperation, I think of uh, kindergarten when you're being taught how to share. That's not where we're starting. We're starting much earlier than that. <laughs> we're, we're starting like origins of multicellular life so you know there was a primordial soup right and you just had cells like moving around and eating and reproducing and all that and then at some point they're like hey maybe we should go in on this together and (laughs) then they had to figure out how to cooperate and Mm -hmm. it turns out a lot of the things that cells do when they're interacting with each other um, and the things that had to happen for multicellularity to be possible Mm -hmm. are really similar to the kinds of cooperation that happen in human groups amazing I, I'm excited to get it's into cool, it. It's cool, like this fractal kind of thing. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, oh, okay, yeah. That's, that's cool. I'm really excited. Yeah, Drake, I know. You were about to say it. What's, uh, I'll yeah, say it too. Yeah, you go ahead. You go ahead. Yeah. I'm really excited. No, no, yeah. no, no. You go. Yeah, I'm also no, excited. Go. But yeah. also, it's a uh, Canadian problem. It's a Canadian standoff. This is usually where it's a 30-minute, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, no, please, after you. No, no, after you. <laughs> I think I was, I was trying to do Kyle's job and say, what are we going to learn today? Uh, um, what kind of things do you want our listeners and us to take away uh, about cooperation today? What are the things we're going to hit? Well, I would say two important things. One, we've kind of already covered, which is just (laughs) cooperation applies at all these different levels. Mm -hmm. And some of the same fundamental principles work on these different levels. It's kind of like how, you know, physics applies at all different scales. Sometimes different equations work better for like different levels. Mm -hmm. But it's the same with cooperation theory, with sort of game theory, where really the same general principles apply across all these systems, but sometimes things behave a little differently at at different scales too. Okay, interesting. So let's jump into it, I guess. Yeah, let's go. So start from bottom to the top, I guess, or do you want to go from humans down to the bottom? Where where do you guys want to start? The only thing I understand is I understand (laughs) humans and cooperation within humans. So let's start with the stuff I don't know. So I can kind of have a baseline for where we're going to go and how that compares to what humans, how humans cooperate. Got it. All right, so we've got origins of multicellularity. We can start there. So mm-hmm. got cells, they're doing their own thing. At some point, you get a few cells that instead of like fully dividing, they kind of stick together a little bit. Mm-hmm. And at that point, when you start getting a, an aggregation of cells that are genetically identical to each other, you can get the evolution of all sorts of cooperative things. So there's five main ones mm-hmm. that are really important. One is inhibition of proliferation. So that means basically that the cells don't just keep dividing and dividing and dividing. They're like, oh, let's divide some and then kind of stay around this size. Mm -hmm. And um, initially, multicellularity was sort of, you know, just these sort of small clusters of cells that were sort of regulating their Mm -hmm. proliferation. Mm -hmm. Then you have a control over cell death, too, because like a cell on its own it's just going to, you know, sort of live out as long as it can. But as part of a multicellular body, you actually got the evolution of what's called like cellular suicide or apoptosis, where cells can actually self-destruct mm-hmm. if that is better for the organism. 
Oh, okay. So that's like Ooh. super altruistic behavior, yeah. right? It's like... What a nice cell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good little yeah. cell. Yeah. 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 So so you got those two, the proliferation inhibition, yeah. the uh, cell suicide. And you can kind of think of those almost as like cooperation about like the demographics of the multicellular body, right? Because right. it's, it's, you know, going to stay a certain size and sort of regulate itself in terms of how many cells are in there. Mm-hmm. And then you've got a couple other aspects of cooperation that I like to think of as sort of more economic cooperation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you have systems for uh, re- delivery of resources and like moving resources around. So the cells that have access to the resources can get the resources to the cells that don't. So if you think about it, like when you have an aggregation of cells, when it gets to a certain point, nutrients can't actually get to the cells in the middle because of diffusion, right? Because the there's, sure. Yeah, the yeah. pressure isn't high enough, right? So, right? so you get these resource transport systems. So that's one of our sort of economic cooperation. Right. Then we've got division of labor, right? So simple example, some cells on the outside, they could like make little, you know, flagella, like little flippers that can get, you know, the cell around. And then some of the cells on the inside can specialize in reproduction. So becoming like, you know, germ cells that could like pop out and then become a new organism. Right. So division of labor. Mm-hmm. And then we've got like the last but not least one, which is the creation and the maintenance of the environment, the extracellular environment. So, you know, you have cells, but there's also stuff in between the cells that helps to support the cells and um, just make everything function the way that it should. And the cells actually have to produce proteins that sort of populate that space. And then they have to clean it up and take care of it and fix it and do all the things that, you know, in America, we're not so good at, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think in Canada, it's a little better, right? There's yeah. a little more... Yeah, a little bit more recycling. A little, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In Vancouver, specifically. Yeah, yeah. especially, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's like the... Those are the three sort of economic sides of mm-hmm. multicellular cooperation. You've got um, transporting resources around to mm-hmm. the cells that need it. Yep. You've got division of labor, mm-hmm. and then you've got taking care of the environment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so I don't see in any way how this could relate to humans. Yeah, no, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. No, that's really, that's really interesting. So, and so you take this in your research and how are you, you're just basically com- making comparisons across like how humans function and how the actual cells function within our bodies. Yeah, so that's a lot of it is sort yeah. of uh, looking for these parallels, mm-hmm. finding them, and then um, making models on my computer, so computational mm-hmm. models of how these kinds of processes work. And ultimately, in terms of my interest in multicellularity and cooperation, that comes full circle to some really important health issues like cancer and um, other aspects of sort of trade offs that can happen with our health when cooperation isn't what it should be. Okay. Okay, so before we get into the cancer topic in your specific research, let's talk about cooperation in humans a bit. Yeah. So mm-hmm. does it shake down exactly like those five categories with humans as well? Uh, because for me, cooperation has always been my thought is that humans don't generally cooperate unless they have to uh, because it would benefit them. Is that the case? You know, so much of like talking about cooperation in humans is it's so hard because we we actually have evolved to have all of these like moral reasoning systems that I think actually make it harder for us to like look really objectively at human cooperation because mm-hmm. our brains were like oh you know what well what's important to us evolutionarily it's like is this someone who's going to be you know positive for me or someone who's going to be negative for me and our brain is kind of like sorting through our world in that in that way that's very sort of self-focused and I think it actually makes it hard for us to get out of our own heads and think like class like what can we classify as cooperation or how should we define it because so many times like if someone is doing something that benefits me it could be really bad for someone else but from my perspective I'm saying oh that's like the best cooperator ever right Mm -hmm. so so cooperation is a really like perspective dependent thing yeah um and mm-hmm. we we've evolved inside bodies that have a perspective and so mm-hmm. when it comes to human cooperation like that is always like the biggest barrier is like you're inside a human body yeah. that has like an evolved psychology like mm-hmm. an evolved moral psychology so so yeah so that's like <laughs> yeah. that that's it, a great it, response it, we're like that. trapped we're trapped yeah. in our human selves so well, like uh, just to kind of 
an example perhaps is like if you had two different warring factions of people um, and both sides are cooperating amongst themselves, if I'm on the other side and I see these people cooperating, that's not good for me. I'm upset by that. Exactly. Right? There's a negative consequence to me of these people organizing against me in the same way that having my group of people organize is beneficial to me. And, yeah. and it would be a, a perceived as being negative by the other. Yeah. In fact, some of the most astounding examples of human cooperation are during times of war. Mm-hmm. Oh, certainly. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we have to kind of think like, well, what do we really mean by cooperation? And ultimately we have to say, oh, we mean it relative to some entity. Yeah. Right. And that always just has to be part of, you know, the way we're talking about it. Certainly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, just so that we kind of have a a clear base here, how would you define cooperation? So I like to take a very practical approach to defining cooperation. Um, Either as like when one individual is providing benefits for another individual or when individuals are working together towards some common goal. So cooperation, like the word itself, like cooperation, it actually means like working together, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Together operating. So um, so I think that there's a a good argument to be made for that definition just Mm -hmm. because it's actually what the words say. (laughs) Um, That is the exact definition of the two parts. Yeah, right. But I think at least in the field of cooperation theory and game theory and all of that, when people say cooperation, oftentimes they do mean something like one individual providing a benefit for another. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is like some of the swampiest territory and like all of um, evolutionary biology is like how you define cooperation. What is altruism? Because you can literally define it away by how you sort of specify who is going to be the recipient of the benefits and mm-hmm. how. Right. And then you can say, oh, well, nobody is ever altruistic or cooperative because you can account for it that it's going to increase the fitness of the genes that code for it, either <laughs> through this or through that. And so right. um, so I think that it's actually important to sort of define it concretely and practically. Um, and then and then sort of have another set of tools for thinking about the evolutionary dynamics, which mm-hmm. should involve math, not just words. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Get back to that computational yeah. modeling. Yeah. yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. I have a question for you, Athena. Uh, you've, you've used the word altruism a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, do you want to define altruism? No. <laughs> you said, you said, <laughs> Definitely you said not. altruism yeah. and cooperation are the hardest things for evolution. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Can't blame you. Next question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, so, it's, I mean, it's so hard because if... We're going to say, you know, altruism is doing something like so. a traditional definition is mm-hmm. like doing something at a cost to yourself to benefit another. Right. But that is incompletely specified. Like what, you know, what kind of cost? Who is the self? Mm-hmm. Right. Are we just talking about me as an organism, as the organism that I am? Are we talking about all of the genes that are part of my germline? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's really hard to mm-hmm. to give a definition that is complete enough to, you know, not be confusing. And, and then yeah. and plus there's a whole like question of, well, well, if I enjoy helping you, yeah. then, then you're actually not altruistic. Then I'm not altruistic, it right? Implicit, like reinforcement more or less, right? Yeah. So I'm like, oh, I've got an extra candy bar. Do you want it? And you take it and you look happy. And I'm like, oh, that makes me happy. Yeah, and then awesome you could be now. like, Athena, you're such an asshole. You just gave me that candy bar to make yourself feel good. <laughs> right? Like you're doing it just yeah. for yourself. The person that's eating the candy bar already is like, you're an ass <laughs> for giving me this candy bar. <laughs> Weird interaction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, Henry Crumb's like, yeah, you're sure. just pissed off because yeah. you just gave him a candy bar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an interesting. To- I, I always think altruism is such an interesting topic. I think of like doing things for others without that benefit, but you doing things for others is literally giving gifts. People love giving gifts. Yes. And so if you love giving a gift, that cannot be defined as altruistic because you're benefiting in some way from it, right? Yeah, well, and that's why I didn't want to talk yeah. about altruism, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. right? Great. Because... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moving along. So, so I, think, I think that's a great point. I, we definitely had to define what it was, but yeah. it's, so, it's, such, a, it's a, such a complicated yeah. area. Yeah. And I think cooperation is also very complicated, yeah. but I guess we can actually separate the word to make a little bit of sense. Yeah, well, I, I will say one other thing, which is, you know, we are really social species. Yeah. And we did evolve in, you know, this world where 
sometimes we had really good interactions with people that where we had like really aligned interests and we could accomplish goals together, etc. And then other times there are people who didn't have our best interests at heart or who we just conflicted with because of the way that the world was set up. Mm -hmm. And so when we have people who we have aligned interests with and things work well for them or we're helping them and we see them happy, like our brains evolved to give us like, you know, good juice. Like, yeah, yeah do that, do that, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. it was good for the people who you're interdependent with to be doing well, right? Yeah. And yeah. so our evolved psychology is basically, you know, structured so that we feel good when we're helping people who we're interdependent with in one way or another. Yeah. And so to me, it just seems nonsensical to like try to define away altruism. Like if it feels good, then it's not really yeah, altruism. Yeah, really altruistic in the end. Yeah, yeah it, it just, I think it just kind of confuses the issue. And I just much prefer to say like, okay, well, you know, what resources are being transferred or what, you know, help or services are being given. And like you can say like, okay, that's actually happening in the real world. Yeah. And then you can consider separately you know, what are the potential evolutionary reasons why that's there, right? Like, is it because of genetic relatedness? Is it because there's an expectation of, you know, direct return, like mm -hmm. a, you know, dead credit kind of relationship? Yeah. Or, um, you know, is there some more kind of general interdependence that is making one person help another um, without expecting anything in particular, but just sort of building a relationship that might have yeah. some, you know, long-term benefits, um, mm -hmm. even if you can't account for them so easily. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I'm going to ask a question that is, I think in many ways, a little bit loaded, but um, looking at sort of the current political climate around the world, globally, you mentioned the need to be interdependent or like this interdependence might assist us in being able to be more altruistic in whatever term or however we might define that. Do do you see sort of a relationship there between this lack of lack of maybe empathy and sympathy and, and cooperation between groups and maybe a factioning, if that makes sense? Am I even making sense? Yeah, I, no, I mean, this is like a, a huge... I mean, you literally just asked me about like the world. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Explain um, but, how to fix the world. This, yeah. is, this is what I do. I ask these like really big questions. You can tell us how to fix the world. Yeah, perfect. Well, I, I can um, talk about a project that I have where we're actually looking at small scale societies around the world yeah, that I think has it. some implications for this. Perfect. So, um, so we have a project. Me and Lee Kronk, who's an anthropologist at Rutgers, we have a project called the Human Generosity Project. And in the Human Generosity Project, we're using field work in small scale societies and experiments in the lab with human subjects and uh, computer models, mm -hmm. uh, which I was talking about before. What do you mean by small scale societies? Small scale societies. So hunter gatherers, pastoralists, um, fisher horticulturalists. So basically people who are living subsistence mm -hmm. lifestyles. Mm -hmm. um, and we have field sites, several in Africa, one in Mongolia, one in Fiji. Um, we have a few in the United States now. We have one in um, southern Arizona, sort of near where mm -hmm. I am with ranchers. So mm -hmm. they're not subsistence, but, but they remote. are ranching. Yeah. Um, sure. And they live in sort of really rural, isolated areas. And we also have a field site in Appalachia. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, so basically, we're interested in how do people help each other in times of need? And how does interde interdependence play a role in that? Um, but our main question has really been like, is this um, this idea that you help others in times of need and you don't expect to get paid back? Like, is that a thing? Mm -hmm. So so the whole project started because my colleague Lee Kronk is an anthropologist. He did a lot of field work with the Maasai in East Africa. So they are pastoralists. That means they have herds of livestock, um, mostly cows traditionally, but they also have other livestock. And they have this system of sharing that they call osotwa. And osotwa is this idea that you only ask for help if you're truly in need. So if you don't have enough livestock to support your family with meat and milk and blood, they actually like they drink the blood too sometimes if they don't mm -hmm. want to like kill an animal. But they yeah. So well, so they're vampire like action. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah so so they survive at least traditionally off of their herds. Wow. And so if a family doesn't have enough. Um, cows to survive, then 
they can ask one of their Osotwa partners for enough cows to sort of bring them up to where they need to be. Mm. And so so there's sort of two sides to Osotwa. One is you only ask for help if you're truly in need. And the other is that if you're asked for help by an Osotwa partner, then you give up to what you're able to without going below mm. your own threshold. Yep. Um, and so it's kind of different from like a resource pooling, right? Mm-hmm. It's not that, well, everyone puts their cows into the, you know, pool mm-hmm. and then takes out what they need. It's still private property, basically. Yeah. But there's this sort of social safety net. Right. And so uh, we got really interested in, in this question. Um, I actually, uh, so I, when I was still a graduate student, I contacted Lee Kronk, you know, now the co-director before this was before we were working <laughs> together um, because I was looking for a postdoc. Mm-hmm. So right. I said, hey, you know, we we had met at conferences and I really liked his work because he worked on, you know, cooperation yeah. broadly. I was like, hey, do you have a do you have a postdoc by any chance? Because uh, <laughs> I need a postdoc. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, but I have an idea for a model. Do you want to work on a <laughs> model together? <laughs> so so basically I, I wrote a, a model mm-hmm. of Osotwa yeah. where there were different players and they had herds and the herds were growing or shrinking based on um, basically I took like the realistic parameters from what goes on in Maasai and, you know, East African ecology, put that into the model. Um, So the herds are like growing and shrinking and sometimes, you know, someone will need help and then they can ask. And so I put in the Osotwa rules and then we looked at what happened. And um, it was, honestly, when I started, I thought this is like, it's so simple and it's it's going to be really easy to do which it which it was it was relatively easy to do the model and i'm like and but it's probably not going to go anywhere because it's just this like simple thing and it's like obvious that it works right that it's good to help and um but doing this model when we you know realize like oh there's actually really a substantial survival advantage that you get from this rule and then Subsequently, I put in other rules, too, to compare. Like, I put in a, a debt credit system to okay. compare it, and the need-based transfer system did better than the debt credit system. Um, and even when you, like, broke it down and, like, had some individuals playing, like, the need-based way and some playing the debt-based way, um, the the need-based um, players, like, it was... Um, they, that was like the advantage. And I, I won't go into like the details, but it's like the yeah. equivalent of like a stag hunt game for anybody who like knows game theory where like the need-based transfer, you know, both par- parties doing need-based transfer is a thing that makes the most sense. Right. And uh-huh. so so it was sort of like this revelation because my in my previous work in grad school, I was all about like, well, let's look for like the simple rules that allow cooperation to evolve. And I showed that this like, walk away rule, which is basically like you leave if your partner defects. (laughs) Really easy. Like I showed that that does better than tit for tat, which is like punishing. Um, So I was like, okay, like I did that. I like did the like simple rules work Mm -hmm. and simple rules that are nicer can work sometimes better than like the punitive ones. And then I'm working on this need-based transfer stuff and like there it is again, like a nicer rule Actually is actually doing better than a rule that's like, yeah, I bailed you out and now you need to pay me back. Like yeah. the need-based transfer rule is just like, well, I bailed you out and you know I know that we have this relationship and so if I'm in need, you'll help me, but I'm not yeah. expecting you to pay me back as soon as you have yeah. enough to pay me back. Yeah. When it's, I'm still good, yeah. yeah, when I don't need it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, so this like just grew into this bigger and bigger project. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, we started sort of looking at, well, where are other places in the world where there are these need-based transfer systems, or we think they might be there. Mm -hmm. And um, we built an amazing team of people, and um, we're up to, I think, 11 field sites now, depending how you count, because some are kind of in development. Mm -hmm. Um, And we, you know, across all these field sites, we found that people have... um, uh, and that there are these cultural norms about helping in times of need that map onto these kinds of rules of like you only ask for help if you're really in need. If someone asks you for help, then you help if you're able. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the coolest things I think is that oftentimes these need-based systems are actually like culturally coexisting with like debt credit systems. So among the Maasai, they have Osotwa, but they also have another system called Sile, which is like, you know, I'll lend you some of my cows and then you'll pay me back. Yeah. And somehow they're 
negotiating mm-hmm. having both of these systems, right? Mm-hmm. And um, some of the the work that we've been doing in Arizona actually is really pointing to um, the importance of like um, uncertainty and um, controllable uncontrollability. So if there's some if like something bad happens to you, sort of it's not your fault, it couldn't have been expected, et cetera, et cetera, then it's much more likely that any request that you make will be like a need-based one right. and people yeah. res- will respond to you that way. Yeah. Versus if you're like just, you know, Every ambitious day. and you're trying to do something more and you already have everything you need and you make a request, yeah. um, then... They expect some return. Yeah, or anyway. for things that are really expected. So like with the ranchers in um, Arizona, they have certain things that they know happen regularly, like branding or... Um, getting their cows to market or, you know, making sort of routine repairs that have to happen every year. And with those, there is an expectation that, you know, if I come to your ranch and help you, that you'll come to my ranch and help me because it's something that's... that's Exchange of goods and exchange of resources, right? Yeah. There still has to be that within a system to to function usually. It doesn't always have to be when I'm in dire need that that's when cooperation will occur. Right, right. So so you have these two kinds of systems. And I think in our modern Western society, we, we also still have these systems, but yeah. I don't think we recognize so much right. that like, yes, there's a lot of things that happen in the market world. And then there's some things that happen in, I you know, yeah, maybe say scale. this more like sacred space of mm-hmm. like, we have a relationship where we care about each other's welfare, yeah. right? And so we yeah. will help each other without... Yeah. expecting to get paid back yeah of course right. you think of like someone getting sick or like yeah. uh, a loved one you know going to the hospital and you going and spending time with them or giving them like you know baking goods and stuff like that you don't expect yeah. them to yeah I, I i made you a pie or i made you like a lasagna i expect you to get me one back two weeks later that's right yeah, yeah yeah like that's not where's my freaking lasagna <laughs> yeah, yeah. like i brought you a lasagna I, I two weeks a ago lasagna. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're going to get me the yeah. pc edition like yeah. store-bought lasagna that doesn't cut it no not good <laughs> yeah so so what I'm gathering from everything that you've said, that just to summarize and quickly go back to my question, is would it be incorrect to say, just be nice to each other? Like, is that not a really viable, beneficial strategy for everybody involved? It's just to be nice? I I think life is much better, like, even for you, if you're just nice, right? <laughs> like, I mean, I, I don't know if we even have to make like a large scale argument about like <laughs> the betterment of the world, but like our mm-hmm. lives are better if we are nice because I mean, the people who you interact with, like, I mean, it's an interaction. And so if you're putting positive energy out there, mm-hmm. um, most of the time, you know, you, you get positive energy back. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, I think yeah. like, you know, in general, being nice is good. It probably would also make the world a better place yeah. if people were nice. Um, there is one caveat, though. Okay, let's hear it. Which is cons and scams and all of that. Yeah. So um, with the way our society is now, the scale of the interactions that we can have and like the um, distance that you know, people can kind of approach us from yeah. is just, it's completely unprecedented in terms yeah. of like our evolutionary history and therefore like our brain's ability to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And especially now with um, internet and like uh, internet dating yeah. and um, sort of the accessibility of people to each other, scams and cons are like getting much more yeah. out of control. Yeah. And oftentimes people will prey on individuals who seem like they're particularly nice who care about others um so yeah so this is something i think is actually really important for us as a society but also as like psychologists and you know related disciplines like that have something to contribute to this to Mm -hmm. really figure out you know how do we give people tools to protect themselves against getting scammed and conned while still being able to be Be nice nice, right Well, and, you know, if we think about sort of cellular division at a human level, we are, we've evolved and we've divided up so that we have a whole faction of people being police officers and people of that nature who Mm -hmm. go out there specifically to prevent people from doing these kinds Mm -hmm. of things too, right? So yeah, I feel bad though, because all the Nigerian princes in the world are probably being mistreated (laughs) unfairly, (laughs) unjust, unjust treatment of Nigerian princes around the world. Are you still waiting on your money? Yeah. (laughs) They said they'd pay me like triple what I gave them. So yeah, I know me too. (laughs) Tough sledding over here. Yeah. I I think that's a really good point though. I think that for me, it's a more philosophical question for you is like, do we need to have 
bad people in the world to, to really benefit from this niceness. Like for me, it's like to be nice is definitely a great goal, but it's like, we have to have some sort of metric to say we're nicer than these people, you know? <laughs> 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 you know what I mean? Like for me, it's like, that would be a truly altruistic world if there was no one that was scamming or conners. And this, I think the point that you make is great, but yeah, being nice in general is great, but you have to have guards up because there's always bad people in the world or bad things that could happen. Yeah, well, this kind of then brings us to one of these fundamental truths about yeah. like cooperation, which is anytime you have like cooperation happening, you've got a bunch of individuals cooperating. Uh, as you scale that up, as that group gets bigger, the opportunities for cheating uh, yeah. increase, right? Because there's more individuals that could be exploited and it becomes harder and harder and harder to detect cheating mm -hmm. and to police it. And it's like, a, it's like an exponential mm -hmm. kind of problem, right? Because how do you monitor these groups as they get larger? Um, if, it, if you're in a group of two, like you and one other person, it's pretty easy to know if you're being taken advantage of, right? Because you're like, oh, I'm, you know, putting in this much and I'm only getting back, like, you know, a lot, I'm getting back a lot less than that. So the yeah. other person must be not pulling their weight. Right. But if you're in a group of 10 or 100 or a million or, you know, like, yeah. how do you figure 7. out? 7.7 billion. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. What? Yeah. How yeah. do you figure out if someone is not pulling their weight, right? Yeah. You might be like, oh, well, maybe... Uh, the return I'm getting back isn't what it should be. So someone out there is cheating. But then how do you figure out yeah. who? And how do you coordinate a response with the other? Like it's a, you start it's a to stereotype really... and start to decide what the out group is, I would imagine. <laughs> probably be the response, right? Yeah. I mean, that's certainly, I think, in humans, yeah. one of the aspects of our psychology that's mm -hmm. really relevant to this. Yeah. So I know, I know that we're going to be heading in this direction. I think now might be a cool way to, a cool spot just to segue into it. How does all this play a role in cancer? Because I see cancer cells as being sort of those little assholes that are skimming off yeah, the top, right? Exactly. So how do we deal with this at a cellular level then? Yeah, well, this fundamental issue, right, that as you scale up mm -hmm. the groups, this problem of detecting cheating mm -hmm. and responding to it gets harder. This is exactly what happened when we went from like really simple multicellularity to really big and complicated multicellularity. Mm -hmm. So we're about... 30 trillion cells. It's a couple. Yeah. Yeah. Several <laughs> orders of magnitude more than the number of humans on Earth. So, yeah. like, just take a minute and, be, and think about that, right? So, yeah. it's... It's insanity. It's crazy, yeah. right? Like, how many cells are us? Yeah. And every second, yeah. our cells are cooperating and coordinating with each other so that we can be functional beings, so that we can eat and drink and walk and talk and think. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's insane. Dying, constantly dying off and regrowing. It's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a big system. Yes. So, and we're not even the largest organisms on earth, right? Yeah. There's right. Elephants that are a hundred times, have a hundred times more cells than us. So it gets bigger. Yeah. And so then the question is how do our cells maintain that cooperation and police for cellular cheating? How do our bodies yeah. stay together on a daily basis? <laughs> exactly. It's a truly amazing thing. It that is. It like, stays together. yeah. <laughs> this is why I fully, fully believe that, like, uh, Spontaneous combustion is a thing. <laughs> All 30 trillion of these cells are just like, no, I'm done. Just yeah, everybody just up and out. <laughs> no scientific backing on that one. <laughs> Please don't this email me about this. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to email Drake, email <laughs> <laughs> to the website. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so cellular cheating. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about cellular yeah, cheating. Absolutely. So uh, earlier on, we talked about the five sort of aspects of multicellular cooperation or um, as we've called them the foundations of multicellular cooperation you've got the inhibition of proliferation so keep the cells keeping themselves from just dividing out of control you've got the cells suicide mechanisms you've got the resource distribution division of labor taking care of the environment yeah. cellular environment um, so all of these things break down in cancer all five levels all, all of those yeah. all of those things break down in cancer and Basically, cancer is when you get this breakdown of cellular cooperation, and then those cells that are sort of cheating in these foundations of multicellularity, they're getting more resources for themselves, they're proliferating more, they're not dying as much, they're you know co-opting the whole multicellular system mm -hmm. um, for their own benefit. So then they increase in frequency in the population mm -hmm. of cells in the body, right? So the cancer cells are cheating, they're getting an advantage, and they're growing because of it. 
So they're just like a group of cheaters in a cooperative group mm-hmm. that is, like you said, sort of skimming off the top, mm-hmm. getting more for themselves, and then fueling their growth mm-hmm. through that. So that is, that's basically what cancer you know, It's is. interesting that you bring it up because I, I never actually made that connection. I was reading recently um, a paper about uh, the proliferation of blood vessels in tumors. Yeah. And now that you say it, I'm like, oh, obvious. Right. Like, exactly. It totally makes sense now. Yeah. Um, the, these these cells are able to sort of say, oh, we'll just take a little more of that and a little more of this. And now there's more of me and I'll just make more of me. And Yeah. In fact, you think about what are those cancer cells doing when they're signaling for blood vessels? They're like, hey, we need more resources over here. Right. They're yeah. like basically doing need-based transfer signaling in the body, right? Like the body is like, oh, you need help. Well, we're yeah. all, yeah. you know, they're, yeah, they're, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, yeah. they're cheating in the need-based transfer rules of the body. Yeah. Like, Bastards. Yeah. Let's, let's get them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, adheres to them. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I find it interesting that there's, uh, you know, we've kind of touched on it in many ways that there's these different levels and that it kind of happens at every possible level of these different cooperative procedures for mm-hmm. a better way of putting it um and we see the con men in every way yeah right so how so now we know and we see it's, it's abundantly clear this this comparison across these systems what are you doing or what's the research that you're doing that's kind of are you just focusing on the comparisons or is there something that you're like looking to model or specifically get into when it comes to cancer yeah so in terms of my work on cancer i actually just finished uh, a book for princeton university press called Evolution in the Flesh. And uh, the goal of that book was really to lay out how evolutionary theory and ecological theory and cooperation theory all help us to understand what cancer is, kind of the fundamental nature of it, Mm -hmm. um, and also how we can treat it better. And so for the last year or two, a lot of my energies have been going into that book because I felt like there wasn't really a a resource um, for you know, either academic or the more general public or for, you know, grad students or even undergrads who are interested in these questions. And so that's uh, what a lot of my time has been. (laughs) Writing a book is not easy. No, yeah. yeah. (laughs) We may as well take the opportunity. Tell us, when can I get my grubby little fingers on that book? Ooh, uh, it's going to be coming out in spring, early spring 2020. Okay, great. Evolution in the Flesh. Evolution in the Flesh from Princeton. So Great, okay. If you're up for it, we'll have you back, and you can really promote the hell out of that Uh, book. I'd love to come back and talk more about it. Absolutely. Yeah, so let's talk about, I mean, well, the implications are pretty clear what's going on here, but do you want to talk about the implications of the work that you've done so far? Other than the fact that we now can understand a little bit more about uh, I see cancer in a different way now, the way you're talking about this cooperation between cells. Yeah. Um, I see cooperation in a completely different way now. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, now I'm going to be nicer yeah. to Kyle. <laughs> no, you won't. <laughs> yeah, no, I've been cheating this whole time. <laughs> I'm the cancer the in this yeah. relationship 100%. Um, but yeah, let's, let's talk about the implications of the, of the work that you're doing and like how does this, what, would, what should someone take from today uh, and say, this is what's going to happen in the future or, or what, what's your work doing for yeah. on a daily basis? Yeah, sure. Well, I'll, I'll give one example of mm-hmm. a um, computer model that I did that was really inspired by kind of taking a cooperation theory approach to cancer, mm-hmm. um, which is there's kind of been a, a big question for a long time about why does invasion happen and why does metastasis happen. So this is when, you know, the cells in the tumor start um, going into neighboring tissues and kind of breaking through the tissue or when like some cells will go into the bloodstream and then land in another tissue. So that's metastasis and they'll start growing in that tissue. And um, I realized that there's a parallel with those processes and um, what's called just basically dispersal mm-hmm. in ecology and evolutionary biology where you have some organisms, um, some will stay local, but some will go into neighboring territories or go really far away. Mm-hmm. And there is a whole you know set of tools in dispersal theory for thinking about that and talking about that. And um, so I was able to make a computer model where I had uh, sort of the environment in the body where there's blood flow coming in and then I, I modeled cells that had different rates of resource use basically because we know that cancer cells consume resources more quickly mm-hmm. than normal cells um, and then I let the mobility rate of the cells evolve okay. so you've got two types of cells right yeah. you've got the 
normal metabolism and then you've got the like upregulated resource hungry metabolism and what happened over evolutionary time is those cells that had the higher rate of resource use evolved to have a higher motility rate because they're using up what's in their environment Mm -hmm. and so that means that they're only that the ones that you know eat a little bit basically you know use up the resources and then go elsewhere, they're going to be able to accumulate more resources in general Mm -hmm. and then proliferate more. So they'll end up as a larger proportion in the next generation. Mm -hmm. And so I showed there's this link between sort of resource use cheating, so consuming too many resources, and the evolution of this more motile phenotype. So sort of direct link between, you know, cooperation or the breakdown of cooperation, the cheating, and Mm -hmm. this super important clinical issue, which is why you get invasion and why do you get metastasis yeah and it it actually suggests you know some really counterintuitive potential approaches to um controlling cancer right because Mm -hmm. once um it is sufficiently advanced like if it's if cancer is metastatic sometimes it's really like not something you can cut out anymore right and you may be able to kind of keep it under control for a while um but uh, it's really hard to cure cancer yeah, after that Yeah, because it's going point. to multiple yeah, areas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it may be that, um, that actually providing resources for the tumor could keep it from Moving metastasizing as right. much, yeah. right? So it's a very counterintuitive mm-hmm. idea, right? Like who yeah. wants to feed yeah. a tumor? That seems like the worst thing you could possibly do. But it suggests that, that you know, that giving you know stable resources maybe you don't want to like give it a lot right yeah. but um <laughs> yeah. but not starving it like because if if it starves then yeah. that may actually trigger the evolution of more mobility and in fact um it's not just that that mobility can evolve but we know that even normal cells have the ability to conditionally respond to low oxygen so they have what are called hypoxia-inducible factors, HIF, which is just a fancy way of saying if there's not a lot of oxygen, it turns on the production of stuff. Okay. Um, and so when there's low oxygen, which is what happens if there's not a blood supply, then the expression state of the, st- the cell changes. And um, one of the things that happens is it becomes more motile. And so... Every cell in the body like has a threshold for when it'll move, basically based on um, hypoxia, and, and not all cells are as likely to do this as others. But um, mm. epithelial cells, at least, they do this a lot. So there's all these ways that the environment, like the ecology inside our body, is like then feeding back and affecting cell behavior. And so if you have cheating cells in there and they're like messing up the ecology, that can also change how the normal cells are behaving because they're responding to the environment. And so it's a really, really complicated, I mean, we know cancer is super complicated, but with cooperation theory and with ecology and with evolutionary biology, it starts to kind of like put down this framework of like, oh, well, maybe this is the kind of thing we would expect. So let's go in and test this specific hypothesis generated from it instead of just being like, oh, it's a complex system. Yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> surprise, right? surprise. Um, yeah. And yeah, so I think like the the real take home message is like with ecology, with evolutionary biology, with cooperation theory, we have some tools that allow us to you know, generate a bunch of more specific hypotheses mm. um, other than like the it's complicated kind of approach, right? <laughs> Shrug your shoulders. Yeah, because yeah, it's, complicated. it's yeah. so complicated. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and you can throw just like, you know, super computational power at that, like give it all of the, you know, give the computers all the data, all, you know, but if you don't have a starting point, a framework for making predictions about what is likely to be going on, like yeah. it's hard to get traction on really yeah. if you understanding. Can't, yeah, if you can't understand, like if you don't have a framework from which to kind of approach it, you're just crunching numbers. Exactly. Like mm. imagine if you're like an AI or like an alien or something, and you have like all of the videos of all of the baseball games <laughs> that have ever been played, um, but you only have like the the bits and like you can't actually watch the game so so Mm. you like don't have any way of like developing hypotheses about what the rules are you're just like 
trying see, to analyze you see each player separated from each other or not yeah. even like yeah or just in the wrong order or just like, like the bits right yeah. and you're yeah. like looking for the patterns and the bits yeah. without like having a sense of what what's actually happening yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so i think That's a good way to put it, yeah. something like that and you know the evolutionary biology the ecology the cooperation theory like those are at least like you know types of things that you might do with a ball and a stick or whatever, you know? And like, so then you can be like, okay, there's a ball and there's a stick and there's some places where the individuals are going and now we can try to figure out maybe what the rules are awesome. of baseball. Perfect. Athena, thank you for giving us such a, a vivid picture and a deeper understanding of cooperation and and all its benefits and where it can break down. Um, with that in mind, let's have a quick little break. Uh, enjoy some tunes. When we get back, we've got a question for you that we've been dying to ask. Mm. So hold tight. We'll see you in the brain break. Cheers. Or welcome back to the brain break, yeah. I suppose, is a better Thank way of phrasing that. Hello. <laughs> Hello, welcome, welcome. We're here today. Uh, anyways, Athena, what is your go-to move for surviving the zombie apocalypse? What are you doing? Oh, surviving the zombie apocalypse. Yeah. The most important thing for surviving the zombie apocalypse is brains. <laughs> well, you, you need the brains. On both sides. You need the brains of your conspecifics, i.e. the other humans around you. You need a team. You need a good team. You should be thinking now who's going to be on your Z team. Okay. I mean, I don't want to, you know, impose, but you think Drake and I make that cut? Or <laughs> I don't know. So How much? are you guys like with the axe, with starting a fire, with um, ballistics, a, that kind of stuff? I was a Cub Scout for two years. Never got the fire going in winter. But I have a lighter at my house. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll admit right off the bat, I think lighting a fire is probably the the thing that I'm least capable of. I can rub two sticks together and make fire. There's no problem. I, I don't know why. I've just like you I can. can? Yes, I can. All right, he's on the. There's team. no right. doubt in my mind. Wait, You're, like you've done it before? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, you should go see. His I, I was <laughs> I was 12 years old when I tried to do that in Cub Scouts. Didn't work. It was snowing. And so, so what was wet that? Snow. Two years ago. Two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> easy, easy. Got him. Got so, him. So I okay. played this. I played this in my mind a million times. Okay. On how to survive a zombie. I was going to say really quickly. I think. I think the thing that's underrated here. The reason that I maybe I make the team. <laughs> is, uh, <laughs> She's trying to get on the team. Yeah, so I got to make the team here. <laughs> I, I know Arizona, not really a hockey state. We have except, a hockey team. I know. Well, the Coyotes, maybe in the playoffs this year. We don't know. I have to stop talking about sports yeah, yeah, in our brain breaks. But <laughs> hockey stick. I mean, that's a ranged weapon in my hands. That breaks whenever you hit a slap shot. Like, you think it's going to work against have a you seen, zombie? Have you seen those old-ass, like, heavy, like, solid wood hockey sticks? So should we just, like, go to, like, a hockey like sto- like a hockey shop and then you're useless <laughs> at that point? Like what, what, The zombie gets a stick? So you can get sticks. That's all you got at the table? You got to bring the table with a hockey stick. Okay, fine. I'll bring a baseball bat too. I well, don't know. We're we'll a sports shop. We got bats and we got a, we the all skates. Our... Might be. Mm. Hey, can zombies skate? Canada I, is a. Okay, let's 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 say your totally chances of surviving the apocalypse movie in Canada, yes. where it's like no just guns. people in the hockey <laughs> outfit, right? Like, like they're in the, the hockey. Goalie, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're fighting zombies with their hockey gear. You're probably way, way more protected. You got the. You guys got a neck guard. You got you got on everything. Uh, brilliant. I think actually, uh, what was the what was the movie? Not Hot Fuzz, but the uh, uh, Shaun of the, the Dead. Dead. Yeah. Of the Dead yeah. I think Shaun the of the Dead set in Canada would just kill because yeah. you know you got guys skating around. You got the you got the jersey over the over the head and you just feeding, <laughs> feeding the zombie. Yeah. I mean, great hockey go. fights. Hollywood, listen up. Yeah. Anyways, um, I, I'm patenting that for me copywriting though. Copywriting that. So smart. <laughs> we'll work on the script later. Smart I'm once you've done the book. Smart team is is definitely you have to have the brains in the operation. But what are you doing when it when it all breaks down? You're in your apartment. Let's say you're in your apartment. It's starting to break down. You're seeing on the news there's an outbreak. Your city's hot. What do you do? You get your you get your crew. Where are you going? You stay in your apartment. Well, what do you do? so fortify. Yeah. So this is the thing about the zombie apocalypse and about apocalypses in general, mm-hmm. right? There is so much uncertainty about exactly what will happen about where we'll be safe, where we'll not be safe, what you would need, what you would not need. Mm -hmm. And so our ability to effectively respond to any disaster 
as apocalypse zombie or not Mm -hmm. is going to be based on having good information Mm -hmm. and i hate to tell you but siri is probably not going to (laughs) help very much and like you know if the internet is like (laughs) (laughs) siri internet's probably not a reliable exactly and and like how many people are like oh yeah i actually don't even you know know how to get from my house to the store because i just use my gps every time right like so we're you know we're really we've become very reliant reliant like you know our devices are our extended brains now Mm -hmm. instead of the other people around us. So you think that this generation would do like astronomically worse than two generations ago? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think it depends on how quickly people would be able to shift from like using their devices as their extended brains to using other humans with information and skills. Reading a map. Or or reading a map. Yeah. Basic Finding a map. Yeah. I don't even know where I'd go to find a map. You got to go to a, a, you go to a gas station. That's where gas stations have all the maps. Mm, true. That's where you so, start. Yeah. My, my first play. Out immediately. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> you I don't survive. a map. I know, I know <laughs> where I am. I know what's going on. Come on. Um, so the first stop should not be the liquor store is what I'm gathering. Yeah. Uh, well, having some, you know, antimicrobial material <laughs> is probably was, good. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going just for. Just vodka, not beer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. Well, yeah, beer is not bad because beer you get hydration. Okay. And I mean, it, if the water supply right, is right, contaminated right. at that sure. point, then mm. High having, content. yeah, you know, and you should grab a bunch of bottles of wine and then you can, you know, use them to dilute your water. Mm. Or you can use bleach and a drop of bleach and a gallon of water. But that seems less fun. Filtration yeah. system. Yeah. Let's just get the vodka. <laughs> <Less fun. laughs> I don't know. <laughs> awesome. So thanks for playing along. Athena, the reason we ask is because we understand that you're the co-chair or the chair, not co-chair. Chair. chair. You yeah. are the chair. You are. Th- I thought about czar, but. Czar <laughs> would be sweet. <laughs> yes, hello. I'm the czar. Uh, <laughs> you're the chair of the zombie uh, apocalypse medicine meeting. Yes. What is that? That is a radically interdisciplinary conference focused on reducing the global burden of zombification. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> I imagine a lot of people are love to think about love watching zombie movies and do, thinking about zombie apocalypse or be like, I'm going to go to the next one. Is that what they're going to get when they go to this? So it is a meeting that spans from you know psychology uh, of like how people manipulate each other to parasitology. So how do like microbes and parasites hijack their hosts to get them to do stuff that might not be in their best interests mm. um, to medicine. So we had like a whole um, first day wilderness medicine session that was based around what would you do in the zombie apocalypse. Uh, and we also have arts. So we had a mini film festival. We had a documentary filmmaker come and um, talk about the documentaries that he's made about microbiome and other things. And it's really a super radically inclusive space for like academics and scholars of all kinds, but also zombie enthusiasts um, are are welcome. We had um, uh, somebody from the Zombie Research Society come and give us a sort of rundown of strategies that you might use in the zombie apocalypse. So we 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 span so cool. everything and nobody is allowed to bring their jargon you got to leave your jargon at home yeah. and instead talk about your work in terms of zombies and the apocalypse so i love that yeah that's yeah. cool where's the next meeting it's also going to be in tempe arizona uh-huh. um in 2020 october i don't remember the exact date that's okay. but it's october like 2020 yeah like end of october so it's close enough to halloween that you can totally get away with oh, yeah. wearing your costumes <laughs> to the meeting Perfect. if you want um <laughs> Yeah, so. Awesome. Well, who knows? Maybe we'll show up on your doorstep. Yeah, you guys should totally come. (laughs) And you could just, like, set up a room and, like, grab people and be like, you know, let's talk about your work on the podcast. So It's amazing. Yeah, that's such a cool way of approaching research that's really actually quite impactful, but doing it in a way that's fun and interesting and engaging. Yeah. Looking at the program was amazing. I loved looking at (laughs) all the talks. They're so funny. Well, I can say also very soon we will have videos of lots of the talks oh, online beautiful. oh fantastic yeah maybe um maybe once the videos are up we can include them on the on our site and yeah and great send people that way yeah a couple a couple yeah. of the talk like just a couple of yeah, talks tease it, tease it, Drake. ethics in the zombie apocalypse was one that i thought was hilarious i'd love yeah. to see that talk and like haunted science frankenstein zombies and our obsession with the monstrous like these are talks that are at a 
yeah. like an empirically run, like yeah. actually like academically, academically informed, informed like <laughs> yeah. conference. Cool. And I think it's so cool that you guys are doing it in that way. Yeah. It's fun and engaging. One of my favorite talks was this amazing psychologist who studies, among other things, food choice. Mm. And he gave a talk. His name is Peter Todd. Total straight man talk. He said, you know, we know we're in the middle of the zombie apocalypse now, but we don't understand why zombies have these food choice preferences <laughs> for <laughs> human bodies and brains. And what part, yeah, it's and, for the brains. Yeah, why the brains? Um, but also for human body parts in general, right? Yeah. Zombies mm-hmm. will eat mm-hmm. human body parts. So he proceeds to give this whole talk in Straight Man about this and explains how you know we need to actually study food choice preferences of zombies and so he set out to do this but the IRB wouldn't let him um, <laughs> get because <laughs> uh, it wouldn't let him study zombies because they couldn't give consent and so he had to use oh. undergraduates um, <laughs> and then he actually did this study like where he had undergraduates um, making food choices between things that they were like morphed like a carrot stick to a severed finger and you had like the morphs in between of like something that was like halfway between a carrot stick and a severed finger. Oh, crazy. <laughs> and then he manipulated their hunger by having them like fast before they came in. <laughs> and he basically showed that, um, yeah, if you're more hungry, you're more likely to say that something that's more like a severed body part is food. Oh my God. And then funny. he brought it full circle back to like how this will help us understand zombies' food preferences and deal with the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> that's incredible. That's brilliant. It was yeah. it was amazing. So yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So 2020, if you were to, if if anybody's around that area, uh, that'd be such a fun Why not conference. Fly in for it. Why not? Yeah, it'd yeah. be amazing. Yeah, fly in for it. That sounds like a perfect. Thank you for the brain break. Music, tunes, we'll be back in a second. (laughs) Hello, I'm Athena Activist, and this is my episode of Brain Buzz and... I love brains, you guys. So, <laughs> so happy to be here. You're in the right place. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. Do we have the brains to do? I, never mind. Apparently not. <laughs> I was going to make a self-deprecating joke, and we'll just stop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, let's move on past that horrible yeah. joke that I was trying to make. Um, <laughs> it wasn't that bad. I, I laughed. <laughs> so, Athena. Uh, usually in the, at the end of the brain break, after the brain break, we go and uh, we talk about myths, misconceptions. Um, are there any particular myths in your area? that you might have off the top of your head. Um, I know I'm putting you on the spot on this one. Well, I think one really important one um, is what's called the naturalistic fallacy. So people um, assume that because something evolved that it's good. Mm. Oh, but <laughs> we are the the high the pinnacle of evolution. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or like you know because like for example with cheating, right? So like if you say well cheating is something that is quote unquote natural because it evolves in yeah. every system, um, that doesn't mean that it's good mm, right. or that it's okay to be an asshole, right? <laughs> right? Like yeah. just because it's part of like how evolution, yeah. you know, what happens, the outcome of evolution doesn't mean that it's okay. Right. Yeah. I think that's also mirrored in the idea like it's been done before. This is how they did it in the past. So this is how we have to continue to do it. It's like yeah. at some point you have to realize that maybe it's not the best uh, way that we've progressed or have evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And just because yeah. it's natural doesn't yeah. mean it's good. So that's like the naturalistic fallacy is like assuming that because it's natural mm-hmm. that that it's good. Uh, so we're talking about things like naturally evolving. And the moment you said it, before I even thought like, oh, we're talking about cooperation or being an asshole or whatever that might be, I was thinking like food. People are always like, oh, genetically modified? That's bad. It's not natural. It's like, well... Is, is, yeah, that's an interesting because that's going against this like the naturalistic like perspective of it being like oh because it's natural it's good, but if it's not natural is it bad? Yeah, well, and then there's there's actually a whole other philosophy which is if it's new and if it's technology then it's good, mm-hmm. right. right? Which sure. is like this whole other <laughs> issue which kind of gets us into like the monstrous territory, right? Of like what are we doing in science and just because we can do it and we can you know modify human embryos or whatever like <laughs> yeah. is that should we? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think it's, you know, neither the case that like what is natural and historically been the case is good, nor is it the 
case that what is new is better um, and that we need to sort of evaluate everything on its own grounds regardless of its newness or oldness. So, so what you're saying is that we have to actually use our brains. Brains. <laughs> to make ethical decisions about <laughs> yes. the state of the world? Yeah, hopefully. Siri won't just tell me. I, I thought no. we already established that. <laughs> She's always there for me. <laughs> oh, that's great. Is there anything that, that's really cool? completely irrelevant to your work or within your work that you think is really cool? Well, I just really love how this idea that really came from Richard Dawkins of the extended phenotype. Do you guys know this notion? No. It's like, so, you know, Dawkins is kind of famous for his book, The Selfish Gene, where he said, hey, you know, what's going on with evolution is that genes are essentially making it more likely that copies of themselves will be around in future generations. And we can kind of understand a lot of evolution in that way. Mm -hmm. He also uh, pioneered this idea of the extended phenotype, which is that genes, they not only evolve to affect the bodies that they're in, they also evolve to affect the other things in the world. And so that includes like, you know, beavers that make dams. The dams are part of their extended phenotype, Mm -hmm. like the, you know, the things that their genes are creating. but for a really social species like us, um, our you know the other humans in our world, they're part of our extended phenotype. Yeah. And we've evolved to shape them, like beavers have evolved to make dams. Mm-hmm. And so I think we very quickly uh, you know get into this space where we're like questioning, well, what you know, where's the line between me and someone else? And you know, what are my goals? What are their goals? And in a ideal world, like you have, you know, these interdependent relationships and you can kind of like be sort of symbiotic with your mm-hmm. extended phenotypes. But then there's also situations where there's conflict. And, and consequences. Yeah. Like and so like that whole idea is really like what prompted me um, to really go deep with this zombie idea mm-hmm. and to start the conference and now to be starting this podcast about zombification. Because mm-hmm. I think it's this really like interesting and deep issue about evolution and how organisms evolve but it's also super relevant for just understanding who we are and grappling with these issues of autonomy and i think now also the way that our brains are actually so integrated with our smartphones and our pockets like Mm -hmm. uh you know things are things are changing in terms of this sort of landscape of our autonomy and intentionality and i think these tools can help us to understand those issues of the future as well as our evolutionary past. I love it. I love Perfect. it. That's like, for me, when you're talking about the extended phenotype and the ideas that you're bringing up, reminds me of the idea that every relationship you have, you can have an impact on someone's life, right? And yeah. regardless of that relationship ends or it continues or whatever, uh, things you do can extend to other people and change the way they act the rest of their life. And yeah. that could impact you know them and everyone around them. It's very cool. It's a, it's a nice kind of way to end this episode, I think, is that yeah. think about how you're interacting with others and, and what where you fit in the system. Type doing? Yeah. yeah. What is what are you extending mm-hmm. to others, I guess, yeah. right? And what is it good, bad? Uh, or are you cheating people if you're a con man? Please do not email <laughs> Kyle or I. <laughs> um, and just stop doing what you're doing if you're yeah. <laughs> Just don't be an ass. <laughs> yeah. And Excellent. just, yeah, w- like think about what, co-op, what we talked about cooperation and how you, what the points you brought up are amazing. That's yeah. something to really think about. I think we should wrap it up. Athena, thank you for joining us in studio today. Thank you so much. It was really amazing to be here. My brain is buzzing. (laughs) Perfect. Yeah, uh, Athena, any shout outs? I mean, there's lots of stuff you're doing right now before we wrap it up. Uh, my book Mm -hmm. my podcast zombified it's going to come out sometime this spring working on that um and yeah asu i'm really happy there so if you like are an interdisciplinary (laughs) person and you're looking for a place to get a job where you can like hang out with other interdisciplinary people asu yeah it's the place to be great so we've got your book uh we'll include hopefully we'll get you back at some point to be able to chat a little bit more about that book's called evolution in the flesh yep and it's coming out next yeah, 2020, spring, spring early spring. Yeah, spring yeah. 2020. Podcast is coming out, Zombified. That's coming out this spring. That's spring right. Spring of 2019. Yeah. Uh, we can include a link to that on our website as well. Awesome. Absolutely, under your bio. How can our people, how can our how can our listeners get in touch with you if they want to reach out? Actipuslab at gmail.com. You can email me there. And uh, yeah, also on Twitter. Yeah. I'm on Twitter. I'm just Athena Actipus. So you can 
tweet at me and we'll be want. posting your all your of that will be on our as website well. as well yeah. great so and we have a link to your beautiful there. website as well we'll probably oh, include that yeah, as well if you like website's thank you great, yeah. great. Uh, if you want to see more of uh, the stuff that we talked about today is a, a zombie zombie uh apocalypse conference. medicine meeting yeah. so that's zombiemed.org yeah. zombiemed.org that's yeah. such a good name and all those links are in, in your website as well yeah yeah so we'll, we'll link to that and uh, there's lots of stuff and lots of ways to connect with athena awesome uh, yes uh, great thank you again athena for joining us uh if you've enjoyed the episode drop by leave us a star or two on whatever platform you picked the episode up at uh you can check out uh, more information about uh, athena and her lab uh, as well as get all of her contact info or, uh, information pardon me information at brainbuzzpodcast.com uh either under the episodes tab or under your bio tab so we'll have a nice picture of you there and uh, um, all the links to get in touch with you as well. So again, thank you. And uh, for us, until next time, cheers. Cheers. Thank you. Are there animals that are assholes? Maybe that's for ducks. Ducks would be one. I think okay. I'm sure. <laughs> Do you have an experience with a duck you'd like to share? <laughs> this is, this is, this is <laughs> completely, we're going to cut this, right? They have corkscrew penises, so they pretty we're much We're not like, cutting any of this. <laughs> <laughs> Ducks are awful. <laughs> and I plan on getting a duck tattoo soon, too. <laughs> I hope it won't be anatomically correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah, why? Never mind, I don't, don't want to know. Anyways, <laughs> that part we can take out. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay. I don't know where I was going with that. Yeah, I don't know either.